Well, welcome everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us online uh, for our missions conference service tonight. And we have a huge blessing tonight. Uh, hopefully, if you can't catch us live, you'll catch it uh, another time here on Facebook. But as we've been promoting and sharing uh, tonight, we have a huge blessing to have not only the other Alliance pastor in town, uh, but also over the past just over a year, uh, the new director of church planning for the Western Pennsylvania District, Reverend Joel Repick, and he has been in the four and a half years I've been here, has been a, a tremendous friend, a great support, and one of those people who just exude the presence of Jesus uh, in ways that uh, seldom get to experience. So it's a huge blessing to have him here with us, uh, here to talk a little bit about church planning, but also living on mission. But uh, I want to welcome Reverend Joel Repick. Good evening, everybody. Uh, Christ Alliance family. I so wish I could be with you in person, but these are the times in which we live uh, where precautions oftentimes are the wise step to take. Uh, so the next best thing is being with you this way. Um, so thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, as uh, Paul mentioned, uh, one of the roles that I now play is as the church planning director for the Western Pennsylvania District of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And we're gonna look at the word of God here in just a moment, uh, but if I can just uh, say something about multiplying churches in Western PA. Um, you know, a lot of people don't realize it, but our district's history in Western Pennsylvania is really rooted in the multiplication of churches. Um, over a hundred years ago, a move of God happened in the city of Pittsburgh in the early Christian Missionary Alliance. And people were encountering the Holy Spirit in that revival. And what inevitably happened, as happens throughout all of church history when there's a move of the Spirit of God, is that leaders and churches began to multiply. Um, so if you look at the history of our district, especially many of our oldest churches, they can tie their roots back to that revival uh, when leaders were being raised up um, after having experienced the spirit being raised up and sent into our river valleys to plant churches and so that really is the history of our district and i really believe that uh, that is still our dna that anointing is still there and that this is what god is still doing i believe that well of revival is underneath us that he wants to keep doing new things, raising up new leaders and new churches in our region because there really are so many people who really do not know about the good news of Jesus. Um, and so the more leaders we send out, um, you know, the more uh, communities that are fervent in mission can be formed you know, to reach the neighborhoods and the nations. So sometimes people will ask me, okay, uh, this multiplying movement that is gaining steam in Western PA, you know, what can a church do to be part of that? Like, what could Christ Alliance do to be part of that? And there's probably a lot of things, but uh, just two quick answers to that question is, first of all, uh, to just become a place that celebrates God's presence and is a place of prayer and fasting. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the world is in the middle of the greatest revival uh, that has ever been seen. More people have come to faith in Jesus Christ and been baptized in water in the last 25 years 
um, than all previous 2,000 years of church history combined. And it does mean that Jesus is coming back. This uh, final great harvest is coming in. And that harvest is coming in through these multiplying networks of churches that are being planted all around the world. Um, but uh, those networks look different. There's different emphasis in those networks, different denominations. But there are some universal norms. As people have looked at these movements of evangelism and church planning, um, they've noticed that there are some things that are common to all of them around the globe today. And the number one thing that is common in all of those movements is an emphasis on prayer and fasting. Um, it is God's design uh, that multiplying movement come out of environments where his presence is celebrated and engaged and treasured and honored and reverenced. Um, so I think the more we become a people of prayer, the more we get to participate in what God is doing in the world. That's the first thing. The second thing is, to just be a place where new leaders um, can take risks, uh, can try new things, can lead in new ways, um, where they can be mentored and apprentice. Um, it's really in the DNA of giving away what we have. And that's a principle in the kingdom of God. We can always give away what we have. Uh, the more we give away what we have to other people uh, to lead and to influence, the more we're multiplying people. And that's, that's really the point. We multiply churches really by multiplying people, by multiplying disciples. Um, and so the more we can be that kind of place, I, I believe that God blesses that too. So those are just two ways to be thinking about, you know, to get involved in what God is doing. And I'm excited to keep telling the stories of what is happening in Western Pennsylvania in church planning. Um, I'm sure I'll have more opportunity to tell those stories in time. Um, but tonight, I want to talk about mission just briefly, what it means to be on mission with Jesus and the place that he has planted us. And to do that, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 10, the beginning of Matthew 10. I really like this passage because uh, the author kind of zooms in on a particular part of Jesus's ministry where Jesus is raising up his disciples, sending them out to do ministry, and then they're coming back and Jesus is debriefing with them. So it's kind of like we get a behind the scenes look at how Jesus developed his own disciples. Um, and I think this is the rhythm that Jesus existed in with his disciples. He would send them out with instructions. They'd go do it. They'd go practice. And then they would come back and he would debrief it with them, talk, th talk it through with them. And they would tell him what happened and he would teach them things about the kingdom of God. And I think this is just the rhythm that he existed in with his disciples while they traveled with him on the earth. So Matthew 10 kind of zooms in and gives us a picture of how Jesus trained his own disciples. And I think it's an extraordinarily practical passage for what it means for us to be on mission with Jesus in the place where he has planted us. Um, so I'm going to read just uh, the beginning part of Matthew 10. There's, this whole chapter is gold, so if we read the whole thing, there would be so much that we could mine from it. Um, but just to get us started, we'll just read the, the first few verses. We're going to read through verse 10. So let's start in Matthew 10, verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. 
Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or staff for the worker is worth his keep. Like I said, Jesus goes on to give more instructions and there's so much we could pull out of this passage, but let's just stop there for tonight and just make four observations about how Jesus develops his disciples in mission and sends them out into the world. First of all, it's noticeable, it's notable that Jesus forms a family on mission. Um, he pulls together this team, these 12 disciples. Now, this could be a whole sermon in and of itself, but when Jesus draws these 12 together, uh, he draws together a group of people who in many ways are not like each other. Uh, they represent different uh, cultural backgrounds, they represent different socioeconomic classes, uh, we know for sure they represent different political persuasions, but Jesus puts them on the same team for mission. Why would he pick a team that is so different? Well, I'm sure there's a lot of ways we could answer that question, but the one thing I just want to point out is that this team does not center around their culture or their political opinion or uh, you know how rich or poor they were. This team forms around a person. And that person is Jesus. And because Jesus is at the center of this team, and Jesus' mission is at the center of this team, um, it means that the team members can be very different from one another, but have this one thing in common, that they have been called by this man, Jesus, to be on mission with him in the world. And I have found this to still be the case today, that when Jesus forms a family on mission, he likes to form these kinds of teams. You know, as I reflect back on my religious experience, my experience in the church, uh, very many times as I reflect back on that, I wonder if it was really Jesus holding us together or if it was just affinity, if it was just that we were kind of like each other. Um, sometimes I wonder, you know, maybe we would have been friends even if we weren't in church because we were kind of like each other anyway. I don't think that's what families on mission are. I think when Jesus makes a family on mission, he's very pleased many times to draw people together who would never be on the same team, never want to hang out together, um, but center around him. And the more I have followed Jesus on mission, the more I've found myself on these kinds of teams with people who are really different than me, different than me culturally. They might vote differently than me. They might think differently than me. Um, but I find myself on the same team with them, and we are following Jesus and his mission in the world. And I'll tell you what, after the times that I've been in a room with those people who are very different than me, soaking the carpet with our tears for unbelievers in our community and the nations, you get up from a prayer time like that and you think, I would die for these people. And it's not because we're like each other, because we're not. Um, it's because Jesus is binding us together around his presence and his mission 
in the world. And so when I think about families on mission, I think about Jesus making himself the center and pulling around him people who are different than each other. Next, I just want to point out that after Jesus forms a family on mission, then he gives them designated territory. He says in verse 5, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any towns of the Samaritans. Now, there's a reason why Jesus is keeping them close. One is theological. Theologians will point out that in the sequence of salvation history, uh, God had revealed himself in covenant, right, with Abraham and his family hundreds of years before this. And he had worked in a special way with Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel, over hundreds of years. But we know from the prophets and other places in the Old Testament that God always had the nations in view. It was never the plan just to save the people of Israel, but he did work with his people in a special covenant way. And so it makes sense that when God takes on human flesh in the person of Jesus, uh, that Jesus and his disciples would begin with that covenant people, the people of Israel. So that's one reason that Jesus would keep them close. But I think there's also just a really practical reason, and it's that Jesus is training them. Jesus is essentially saying to them, hey, for right now, don't go too far. Like, go try this stuff, and then come back, and we'll talk about it. Go try it, come back, and we'll talk about it. Eventually, after Jesus' death and resurrection, he's going to tell them to go to the ends of the earth. And we know from church history that and from the rest of the New Testament, that this group of disciples will literally go to the ends of the earth. But right now, Jesus wants to keep them close. And it makes me realize that in every season of our lives, Jesus has given to us a designated territory to do mission in. Now, for me, this is incredibly liberating, and it takes the pressure off of what it means to follow Jesus on mission. Because you know, when I was young, like when I was in high school, God had gotten a hold of my heart young and I was filled with zeal to tell people about Jesus. But that zeal was sometimes guilt-driven. Like I remember being on the bus in high school and just feeling like I had to get all these people saved. But it was like seven in the morning, you know, and people don't want to talk to you at seven in the morning. Like it's just way too much. But I felt this pressure on me, like I got to sit by all these kids, you know, and tell them about Jesus. Well, the more I follow Jesus on mission, I just don't feel that kind of pressure. And here's why. I think I just recognize that whatever season I'm in today, Jesus has designated a territory for me. And in that place, in the space that he's given, maybe not the whole world, maybe not every bus seat, in this space, in this relationship, whatever that is, he's placed me there to tell people the good news of Jesus. And my role is just to follow Jesus in that space because he's already working in that space. It's not even like I'm bringing Jesus to that space. I'm just identifying where Jesus is at work and joining Jesus in the space where he's working. Now, you might be wondering, well, how, how do I know the designated territory that God has given me in the season? There's probably a lot of ways to answer that question. Uh, but let me give you one clue. You're probably already in that territory. You're probably in that neighborhood in that workplace, in that network of relationships. You're probably at that soccer field or at that football stadium or at that band practice. You're probably already embedded in a network of relationships or a geographic location. And I think our role is just to see what Jesus is doing there and to join him in the designated territory that he's given to us. So Jesus forms a family on mission 
gives them designated territory. And the next thing he does is he delegates to them his authority. He says in verse 7, As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received and freely give. Jesus gives away what he has. This is what God is like. God gives his stuff away to us. And we most clearly see that at the cross when the Father gave to us his son. This is just the generous heart of God toward his creation. And one of the things that God shares is his power, his authority with his disciples. He sends them out into the world. And it's as if Jesus is saying to them, like, look, out there, you're going to encounter all kinds of forms of evil, different forms of darkness and bondage in people's lives. There's going to be demons that you're going to face. There's going to be brokenness in people's bodies. And Jesus is saying to them, you are not going to face anything without my power. You're not going to face anything that I have not provided for. You're not going to have to face any kind of evil out there on mission that my authority is not going to back you up. I find that incredibly reassuring because the more I have followed Jesus on mission, the more heartbreak I've seen. Um, just two weeks ago, I was at a funeral for a young man who was shot and killed in our community. I knew that young man. I knew his friends even better. And there are these times where you can just see the enemy raging and so much of mission is life and death. Sometimes we don't realize it in the church, but the way the enemy is trying to snatch people's lives away, so much of what we do is really life and death. Um, and, you know, I'm sitting at that funeral and just thinking, man, this feels overwhelming. Like, are we making any difference? The evil feels like it's too much. And this reminds me that no matter what I see with my eyes or no matter what fear might creep into my heart, that Jesus has given us everything we need. I'm never going to face a demon out there that Jesus has not given me authority for. I'm never going to face a kind of brokenness, a kind of tragedy, a kind of evil or sickness that Jesus has not provided for. He has fully equipped us as he sends us into the mission. That gives me a kind of confidence that's needed in mission. So he brings together family on mission, delegates territory to them. I'm sorry, designates territory to them, delegates authority. And then this is kind of mind-blowing to me, but I think it's a key for what it means to be on mission. It also can be really liberating, he tells them to embrace poverty as a strategy for reaching the world. Look at verse 9. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff for the worker is worth his keep. I think many times, you know, when an individual or a church thinks about being on mission, the first thing we think about are all the barriers that we might not, you know, we might not be able to overcome. We, and we especially think about what we don't have. Like, oh, we don't have a budget for that. We don't have money for that. We don't have enough people for that. I don't have the right words for that. We think of all of the things that we don't have, and we think these things are obstacles for us doing mission. But Jesus turns it all upside down. He basically tells us disciples, don't take anything, not even an extra shirt. Your poverty is actually going to position you to be able to receive the thing that God is giving. This makes the bar very low to be on mission. It means like the less we have, the better off we are for following Jesus on mission. Let me just tell you a little bit about how 
this has played out in my own story. Um, you know, when I first started in ministry, one of the first things that I had the, the privilege of doing with a team of people was starting a youth development organization in Aliquippa called Aliquippa Impact. Um, but at the beginning of that story, we had very, very few funds to work with. I mean, we raised enough money to pull off a summer day camp program. Eventually, my wife and I and a few of our friends from college moved into the community. Uh, but we didn't have any more money than we had raised to pull off the summer program. So we moved in, and it, all we were in touch with was our poverty. It felt like we didn't have enough money to run any more programs. There's all of this need around us. We're getting to know families, and it doesn't feel like we have anything to offer them. And in that poverty, all we could do was be good neighbors and trust God. And I'll tell you what, when I look back on this story, I am so grateful that we did not have all these resources at the beginning, um, because I think we really would have missed what God was doing. You know, in 2006, I wrote in my journal, tonight we go to the streets, because we didn't have resources to run programs. So the only way I knew how to get to know people was just literally to walk around our community. And my neighborhood has a lot of front porches and sidewalks, and so that worked in my community. It might not work where you live, but in my community, um, you know, everyone was outside. So it was like, well, we don't have money to run any programs, but let's just walk around. And let me tell you something, out there, I was really aware of my poverty. Uh, my degrees really didn't matter. Um, what I knew about the Bible, uh, you know, all my Bible knowledge, theological knowledge, it didn't seem like it mattered very much out there on the streets. Um, you know, I was in a neighborhood that was culturally different than me, so sometimes when I was out there, I didn't understand what was happening or what was being said. In other words, I just couldn't look like an expert. And this is important because sometimes we want to be on mission as long as we look like an expert, as long as we look competent. Uh, sometimes what we call mission is really just calculated efforts at success. Uh, we never really take the risk. We want to look sophisticated while we do mission. We want to look like we have the answers while we do mission. I think Jesus is just saying, no, no, no. Find what you don't have and start there. You don't have the words? Well, great. Just show up. Be present. You don't have money? That's okay. Just show up. Be present. Um, just find a way to be present. Um, among unbelievers, and there's something about embracing our poverty, about taking the weaker position um, as we relate to unbelievers, that actually opens up space for God to do the miraculous. Uh, for a long time, there was a guy in our community who I had a gospel relationship with. I was sharing the gospel with him. He was, you know, wrestling with what he believed about God. And um, I could just tell this guy had his guard up. Like he just was not going to open up to me. Um, and so I was thinking, okay, how could I take the weaker position? How could I embrace poverty and hopefully see that open up, you know, space for God to do something? And one way I've learned to do that is to let unbelievers teach me to do something. So this guy knew how to cook ribs and I wanted to know how to cook ribs. And here's the truth today. Today, my friends can tell you that I know how to make some ribs. But it was this friend who taught me. Um, he came over to my house. Ribs take all day to cook. He was the one teaching me. I wasn't the expert. He was teaching me. And before you knew it, on that day, there were tears running down that guy's face as he opened up his story to me. And I was able to tell about Jesus, tell, tell him about Jesus. And it's because I took the lower position. So sometimes when we're willing to do that, 
to embrace poverty, it opens up, opens us up to the thing that, that God is doing. Um, so, family on mission, designated ter territory, delegated authority, and then embrace poverty. Um, but maybe just one more thought. Um, I want to point out that it's only possible to be on mission with people who are very different than you if you really believe, I mean like really believe that God loves you. Because uh, if you don't, um, you'll be too insecure to relate to people who are different than you, to be in relationship with people who are different than you. Um, you know, if you don't really believe that God loves you, you won't believe that you have what your territory needs, that that the evil that's out there and the place where God has put you, you won't believe that you're going to be able to face that. Like you will have a, um, a failure of confidence. And definitely with this, like embracing poverty, we, we definitely won't be able to go low. We definitely won't be able to take the weaker position unless we really believe that God loves us. And this reminds me that that's really what Matthew 10 and every part of Scripture is really about. It's not that we do these things. It's that we're on mission because Jesus was and is on mission to us. Um, Jesus called us into his family. Jesus included us in his designated territory, which was the world. For God so loved the world, he included us inside of his territory. Jesus not only gives his authority away to us, he uses his own authority to free us from demonic oppression, to heal our bodies, to restore us. He shares his power with us, the restoration, the life, the renewal of the kingdom of God. Those are things that he gives to us. And Jesus embraced poverty. And he had the most to lose. And he came and made himself nothing because in Christ, God became vulnerable. For the sake of love, he extended himself. The Father extended himself to us in Jesus. And that's the only reason we're on mission. It's the only right motivation for mission. It's not guilt. It's not, oh, I should do these things Or in Matthew 10. Even though we should, even the should isn't the motivation. The motivation is that God did these things, that Jesus did these things, that this is what he has done for us. And this is why we join him in the world. So let's pray together. God, I just thank you for everyone who's listening tonight or will listen in the future. And God, I pray for those who are just feeling a stirring in their hearts, even as I talk, just to follow you on mission into the world. Um, God, I especially pray over the weak places, the poor places, the places where we feel like we don't have enough energy or time or emotional strength or words or money to join you on mission. I pray over those places because they're so precious to you. They're holy to you. And we tend to see these things as liabilities, but this is actually where you want to work. You actually want to work in the places of our weakness. So God, I just pray that you would minister confidence in those places. And Jesus, we just thank you that you're on mission to us. And Lord, that's why we want to be on mission with you. So Lord, just grow in us confidence in your love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.